Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. In recent years, transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy has been identified as an underrecognized cause of heart failure. Non-invasive diagnostic techniques and new medication options are changing the way this disease is identified and managed, but early detection is key. The 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA Heart Failure Guidelines feature a new section titled Cardiac Amyloidosis, with which practitioners are likely less familiar. Pharmacist Kelly Heron will review the basics of the disease state and guideline recommendations for treatment. Thank you for being here today, everybody. I'm excited to speak with you about transthyretin amyloidosis cardiomyopathy, which is likely a disease state many of you are unfamiliar with, as it is a rare disease and discoveries related to its diagnosis and treatment have been made recently. I hope to provide a basic overview for you to increase your awareness of it and understanding. Our learning objectives for today are for you to be able to recognize features of transthyretin amyloidosis cardiomyopathy, which will often be abbreviated as ATTR-CM, to recall 2022 AHA-ACC HFSA heart failure guideline recommendations for cardiac amyloidosis, as well as to identify medication options for ATTR cardiomyopathy. These are abbreviations for this presentation. We will begin by talking about ATTR cardiomyopathy features. Now, I want to just start with a basic overview of what amyloidosis is. In a very basic sense, this is when abnormal protein deposits occur in tissues. It happens when normally soluble proteins misfold into a highly ordered structure called beta pleated sheets. These beta pleated sheets are able to accumulate into what are called amyloid fibrils. Amyloid fibrils then can aggregate which would disrupt tissue integrity, structure, and function, leading to disease. And the type of disease seen depends on which organ is impacted, as well as which type of protein is causing the amyloidosis. Different types of amyloidosis are listed here. They are named by an abbreviation with the letter A staying for amyloidosis, and then an abbreviation of the protein causing it. Our focus today will be on ATTR, amyloidosis caused by transthyretin. Transthyretin, or TTR, is a transport protein responsible for thyroxine and retinol binding protein, which carries vitamin A around the body. It is synthesized primarily in the liver, and it has a tetrameric structure, which will be represented by the shape on the right of the screen. As you can see, it is made up of four individual monomers. You might also know transthyretin as prealbumin. So how does transthyretin amyloidosis cardiomyopathy form? As previously mentioned, the liver is producing this tetrameric transthyretin. However, in this disease state, the transthyretin itself is destabilized, which allows dissociation into monomers to occur more easily. These monomers are then capable of misfolding into beta pleated sheets, forming amyloid fibrils. The fibrils then accumulate in the heart tissue, disrupting structure and function, leading to cardiomyopathy. 
It's important to distinguish that there are two different types of ATTR. There's variant and wild type. And the difference comes down to the cause of TTR destabilization. In our variant ATTR, the destabilization is caused by a genetic mutation of the TTR gene. This is a gene located on chromosome 18, and a single amino acid mutation can lead to formation of a protein which is more unstable and easily dissociates into monomers. On the other hand, wild-type ATTR is an age-related process thought to be due to an issue with folding the protein. Much is unknown about how or why this occurs, but it is more frequent with increased age. There are alternative names to be aware of when reading literature about ATTR, as variant ATTR may be interchangeably referred to as hereditary or mutant, and wild-type ATTR was previously known as senile systemic amyloidosis. Clinical presentation of transthyretin amyloidosis cardiomyopathy includes a variety of features. It is a difficult diagnosis to make because of the wide variety of presenting features. Patients have been misdiagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or with undifferentiated heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Heart failure symptoms may be typical, including dyspnea, fatigue, and edema. Biomarkers may reflect abnormalities, particularly in the NT pro-BNP. This might be disproportionately elevated compared to the degree of heart failure seen clinically. Troponin may be elevated as well. On imaging, an electrocardiogram may show low QRS voltage, and an echocardiogram might show left ventricular wall thickening with a septal thickness of greater than 12 millimeters. Patients may also present with hypertension that resolves over time. They might be intolerant of ACE inhibitors, ARBs, or beta blockers. Other common cardiac features include arrhythmias or electrical conduction abnormalities, and these are more common with patients with the wild-type variety. Patients are also at an increased risk for cardiac thrombus, as well as aortic stenosis requiring valve surgery. Extracardiac features can occur due to amyloid deposits in soft tissues. These might present as having bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, spinal stenosis, and spontaneous biceps tendon rupture. Neuropathy is also a common feature, and this is more frequent among ATTR variant type. This can be a sensory motor neuropathy affecting peripheral nerves in the hands and feet, or it can be autonomic, resulting in orthostasis, erectile dysfunction, abnormal sweating, or GI disturbances such as diarrhea or constipation. The epidemiology does vary between the two types as well. Beginning with our variant type, we have a wide range of ages when it can occur from 30 years old to 80 years old, depending on the mutation. The population affected also depends on the mutation, and there are over 130 known variants of the TTR gene. I've listed the most common three here. These are named using amino acid abbreviations. The first one listed indicates that VAL or valine at site 122 has been replaced by ILE, which is isoleucine. This variant originates from West Africa, and it is the most common one seen in the United States, with approximately 3.4% of African Americans, or 1.5 million estimated car carriers in the United States. 3-anine-60-alanine originates from Northern Ireland, and is the second most common in the U.S. And valine-30-methionine comes from Portugal, Japan, and Sweden. This is the most common mutant seen in the world. Median survival after diagnosis is 2.5 years. 
Wild type ATTR, our disease that is related with an aging process, does have an older median age of diagnosis at 74 years old. Our population is mainly Caucasian males, and the median survival after diagnosis, if untreated, is 3.6 years. Prevalence is currently difficult to estimate because it is thought to be underdiagnosed. Right now, estimates are about 100 to 150,000 people in the United States, which is making it a rare disease since it's less than 200,000 people. A recent study conducted by Mayo Clinic researchers looked at the prevalence of transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Looking at a cohort of patients around Southeast Minnesota who had an heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, increased left ventricular wall thickness, and were age 60 and greater, among 1,200 patients, they noticed that 1.3% had diagnosed ATTR cardiomyopathy. They then conducted a prospective screening cohort in which 286 patients underwent screening for ATTR-CM. They then found that 6.3% of patients were positive for this disease. This suggests that if more um, structured screening processes were in place, the diagnosis and prevalence might be higher than it currently is. I also wanted to highlight that there's a potential for health disparity with ATTR cardiomyopathy. Martin et al. published a study in 2022, which looked at 585 patients at a single cohort study. They found that African-American patients were more likely to present with heart failure with, reserved ejection, with reduced ejection fraction than were Caucasian patients, which indicates more progression of disease at the time of diagnosis. This is something to keep in mind to help aid earlier diagnosis and treatment. And finally, there's something called the Transthyretin Amyloidosis Outcome Survey, which is a global longitudinal survey since 2007, collecting data on patients who have any type of ATTR. This brings us to our first knowledge check question. Which of the following types of ATTR cardiomyopathy is caused by a mutation of the TTR gene? And you can submit your answers, answers on poll everywhere. Okay, it looks like all of the responses coming in are unanimous for answer choice B, which is our variant form of ATTR, and that is absolutely correct. This is our form that is caused by gene mutation. A is our wild type form, which is an age-related process, and C and D are different types of amyloidosis, not caused by TTR. Next, we will discuss guideline recommendations related to ATTR cardiomyopathy. We will be looking at the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure, in particular, section 7.8 focused on cardiac amyloidosis. The guidelines provide recommendations for both diagnosis and treatment of cardiac amyloidosis. This is a big change from the 2013 guidelines, which previously mentioned cardiac amyloidosis, but did not offer treatment recommendations. We'll start with recommendation one for the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis. This is a COR or class of recommendation one, meaning that the, is a strong recommendation and the benefit far exceeds the risk. The level of evidence is BNR, meaning it's moderate quality evidence from one or more randomized controlled trials. The recommendation states that patients for whom there is a clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis should have screening for serum and urine monoclonal light chains with serum and urine immunofixation electrophoresis and serum-free light chains. And we'll break down what this means. The first part of the recommendation does provide 
certain characteristics that would suggest heightened clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. Being that this is a difficult disease to diagnose and characterize, it's useful to have these criteria listed. They discussed that this would include left ventricular wall thickness greater than 14 millimeters in conjunction with fatigue, dyspnea, or edema, discordance between wall thickness on echo and QRS voltage on electrocardiogram, as well as aortic stenosis, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, carpal tunnel syndrome, spinal stenosis, and autonomic or sensory polyneuropathy. The next part of the recommendation is related to ruling out light chain amyloidosis using the techniques mentioned. Screening should be done for this because light chain amyloidosis is an entirely different disease, which is rapidly progress, which can rapidly progress to be fatal. If it is detected, patients should be referred to hematology oncology for timely treatment. Recommendation two is also a strong recommendation. It states that in patients with high clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis, which we just discussed, without evidence of serum or urine monoclonal light chains, so we have ruled that out, Something called bone scintigraphy should be performed to confirm the presence of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. So what is bone scintigraphy? This is a nuclear imaging process in which a radioactive tracer, TCPYP, is injected. Three hours later, a scan is completed to assess uptake throughout the body. Uptake in the myocardium is compared to that of the bones using the Perugini scale. And if a patient has equal to or greater than uptake, uptake in the heart equal to or greater than that of bone, then they would be considered positive for ATTR cardiomyopathy. This is an important movement for this disease state because prior to the discovering that this is a reliable source of diagnosis, the gold standard for diagnosis was an endomyocardial biopsy and then followed by Congo red stain. Taking a biopsy from the heart was an invasive process and very risky for these patients. So having a non-invasive, reliable process expands access for diagnosis. And this was brought about by a study by Gilmore et al. in 2016. Recommendation three states that in patients for whom a diagnosis of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis is made, genetic testing with TTR gene sequencing is recommended to differentiate hereditary variant from wild-type transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. And this comes back to our disease state background where we distinguish between wild type and variant. This is important for two different reasons. First of all, if a genetic reason, if a genetic cause is present, then family screening and genetic counseling should be completed. There are, this also has treatment implications as certain medications currently on the market are indicated for hereditary ATTR rather than wild type. Now we'll move on to treatment of cardiac amyloidosis. Recommendation one is a strong recommendation, stating that in select patients with wild type or variant transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis and New York Heart Association class one through three heart failure symptoms, transthyretin tetramer stabilizer therapy, tofamidus, is indicated to reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. As a reminder, our New York Heart Association classes range from class one through four and they discuss different symptoms that patients experience with signs of with physical activity, including fatigue and dyspnea. Class four patients have symptoms at rest, and it's the most severe form. Patients in class four were excluded from this recommendation because they were excluded from the trial that led to the approval of tofamidus. Tofamidus will be discussed much more in depth in the upcoming slides. Recommendation two is a value statement. It says that at 2020 list prices, tofamidus, 
provides low economic value because its cost is greater than $180,000 per quality-adjusted light year gained in patients with heart failure with wild-type or variant transthyretin and cardiac amyloidosis. Quality-adjusted light year is a measure that considers how a treatment lengthens life and improves quality of life. We will discuss why this recommendation is made in upcoming slides. And recommendation three is a class of recommendation 2A, meaning it is a moderate recommendation and level of evidence is from limited data. In patients with cardiac amyloidosis and atrial fibrillation, anticoagulation is reasonable to reduce the risk of stroke regardless of the CHADS2-VAS score. To refresh your memories, the CHADS2-VAS score is a screening tool looking to stratify a patient's risk of stroke if they have atrial fibrillation. One point is assigned for each comorbidity and two points if they are over 75 or if they have a history of stroke or ischemic or TIA. Usually, if a CHADS-VAS score is greater than one for males or two for females, then we would consider anticoagulation. With ATTR cardiomyopathy, regardless of the CHADS-VAS score, anticoagulation should be considered because these patients are at a higher risk for intracardiac thrombus. One study looking at ATTR-CM patients noted intracardiac thrombus in nearly one-third of patients. They also have shown that anticoagulation can possibly reduce the risk of stroke. This brings us to our next knowledge check question. The 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA guidelines recommend which of the following regarding amyloidosis. Okay, so we have some mixed responses on this one. The correct answer is A. We should screen for light chain amyloidosis in order to have timely referral to hematology oncology. Answer B is incorrect because anticoagulation should be considered for patients regardless of our CHADS2-VAS score. Answer C is incorrect because tofamidus is not a cost-effective treatment option at this time. And answer D is incorrect because bone scintigraphy is what we use for diagnosis. Genetic sequencing should be used to differentiate between ATTRV and ATTR wild type. We will now move on to discuss medication options for ATTR cardiomyopathy. This slide provides an overview of the various medications that are currently available or being researched for ATTR cardiomyopathy. We will begin with TTR stabilizers, which act to pre prevent misfolding or deposition of TTR proteins. We'll start with tofamidus, and this is arguably the most important drug at this time for our ATTR cardiomyopathy patients. Tofamidus comes in two different forms. The tofamidus meglumine is an 80 milligrams orally once a day dose, and this is made up of four 20 milligram capsules. Tofamidus is the free acid form as a 16 milligrams orally once daily dose. This medication is available through specialty pharmacies. It is indicated for the treatment of cardiomyopathy of wild type or hereditary transthyretin mediated amyloidosis in adults to reduce cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular related hospitalizations. It works by binding to transthyretin at the thyroxine binding sites, which stabilizes the tetramer and slows dissociation into monomers. This is the rate limiting step in the amyloidogenic process. And in order to illustrate that, it brings back our disease state. Tofaminus acts to stabilize the TTR protein, thus preventing dissociation and allowing decrease in amyloidosis. This medication was approved due to the study called the ATTR-ACT trial. This was a placebo-controlled double-blind phase three randomized control trial. 
441 participants were included if they had ATTR cardiomyopathy, which was confirmed by biopsy at the time, along with evidence of cardiac involvement. Patients were excluded if they had heart failure due to another cause, New York Heart Association class 4 heart failure, or heart or liver transplant. Patients were randomized 2 to 1 to 2 to tefamidus 80 milligrams, 20 milligrams, or placebo. The trial lasted for 30 months. Safety outcomes were impressive as the frequency of adverse events was similar to that of placebo. Discontinuation due to adverse events was actually greater in the placebo group than in the pooled defamatous groups. The primary outcomes of this trial looked at all-cause mortality, in which defamatous had a lower, ex lower death experience at 29.5% versus placebo had 42.9%. The rate of cardiovascular-related hospitalizations per year was 0.48 in the defamatous group and 0.70 in the placebo group. They did find that patients with New York Heart Association 3 symptoms experienced more hospitalizations with tefamidus. This was thought to be due to increased survival while on the tefamidus. Secondary outcomes were looking at quality of life related to heart failure. The six-minute walk test change from baseline was less, less of a decrease in the tefamidus group than the placebo group. This is a measure to see how far a patient can walk on flat surface within six minutes, testing their physical abilities. The KCCQOS, or Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Overall Summary Score, accounts for a patient's physical limitations, total symptom score, health-related quality of life, and social limitations. A higher score indicates a higher, better quality of life. The decrease seen in the defamatous patients was less than that seen in placebo patients. I also wanted to highlight a couple of follow-up trials with tefamidus since the ATTR-ACT. First of all, Elliott et al. conducted a long-term open-label extension study of the ATTR-ACT trial. In this study, all patients were transitioned to tefamidus and later to the tefamidus 61 milligram option rather than the 80 milligrams. The analysis compared patients who had been on 80 milligrams since the start of the ATT-ACT trial to those who had been on placebo at first before transitioning. They found that mortality was reduced by 41% in patients who had been on tefamidus from the very beginning versus those who were first on placebo. This helped to confirm that mortality reduction is maintained over time, and it also suggested that earlier tefamidus treatment improves survival outcomes. A real-world prospective observational cohort study was conducted by Hussein et al. in 2022. Looking at 107 patients at a single center, they compared median survival between patients who were on tefamidus and those who were not. They also looked at the reasons that patients were not on tefamidus. They found that median survival among patients on the medication was 80.4 months versus 17.2 months for those off of tefamidus. They also saw that the reasons people were not taking it related to more advanced disease at New York Heart Association or financial barriers and delay. We must account that if patients were not taking it due to having class four symptoms, they would already be at an increased risk for death. So that is something to consider when looking at these survival statistics. It did confirm that there are real world survival benefits and the reasons for not taking. It also pointed out that the average delay in starting this medication from the time of prescribing was about two months at this site due to cost barriers. That brings us to the next slide, speaking about economic considerations of tefamidus. 
And the study that led to the low value statement from the guidelines was this cost effectiveness trial by Causey et al. They found that this is the most expensive cardiovascular drug ever launched in the United States at a cost of $225,000 per year. The incremental cost effectiveness ratio was $880,000 per quality adjusted life year gained. And if we were to treat all eligible patients with tefamidus, healthcare spending in the United States would increase by about $32.3 billion. These numbers are more typical for medications, which we might see in fields such as oncology versus cardiology. So this is quite a monumental drug for the cardiology field. There are patient assistance programs available. Pfizer does offer one called VendaLink. They provide a copay assistance card, which can provide up to $60,000 in savings annually for our commercially insured patients. There also is a patient assistance program for patients who are um, at or below the 500% of the federal poverty level mark. This program can also provide assistance with applying for Medicaid and Medicare, but you will note that patient assistance is not available for those with Medicare at this time due to the anti-kickback statute. Next, we'll move on to TTR silencers. And these medications work to disrupt hepatic synthesis via mRNA inhibition and degradation. Our silencer therapies include enotracin, patisseran, and butyrosuran. They are indicated for the treatment of polyneuropathy of hereditary transthyretin-mediated amyloidosis in adults. Please note, these are not currently indicated for cardiomyopathy at this time, nor for wild-type patients. However, some Outcomes from the trial did suggest that there could be cardiovascular benefits, so there are ongoing trials to look at these with cardiomyopathy outcomes. These medications work to target transthyretin mRNA within hepatocytes. They are able to bind to the mRNA, causing degradation of both mutant and wild-type transthyretin messenger RNA through RNA interference. Binding here stops the translation of mRNA into the proteins resulting in a reduction of serum transthyretin protein and transthyretin protein deposits in tissues. It was found to have about 85% reduction in transthyretin serum levels for all of the medications. To review these further, enotracin is a once-weekly injection, and it does have some safety concerns. It has a black box warning for thrombocytopenia and glomerulonephritis. A RIMS program is currently in place, and it does require a minimum of weekly lab monitoring. Patisseran is an every three-week IV infusion. It does have concern for infusion reactions, so it's given with pre-medications and infused at a very slow rate. All of these medications can possibly cause vitamin A deficiency because transpyrogen has the role in transporting retinol binding protein for vitamin A around the body. Patients should be supplemented with the recommended daily allowance of vitamin A while on therapy. Butristerin is the newest agent in the class. It's a subcutaneous injection given once every three months, with the less frequent dosing suggested to improve adherence. Side effects are less than the other two options, and we do see the vitamin A deficiency with this medication as well. We'll now move on to TTR disruptors. The goal for this medication class is to target tissue clearance of ATTR deposits. There are many medications which are currently in study right now. At this point in time for medications that are on the market, they're suggested that off-label use of doxycycline and a supplement TUDCA could possibly have benefit in clearing tissue 
However, there's not much clinical data on this. These two trials looked at very small patient populations. One of them found that it was safe and may stabilize disease with surrogate endpoints, but it only looked at 20 patients, so it's difficult to draw conclusions. The study by Wixner et al. was looking at 28 patients, and they noted an increase in NT, Pro, VNP, and had many withdrawals, so this one is difficult to draw conclusions from as well. This is a group of medications which we can keep our eyes out for more um, data and medications in the future. And finally, I will briefly speak about heart failure management considerations for ATTR cardiomyopathy patients. In these patients, guideline-directed medication therapy may be poorly tolerated. ARNIs, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs provide a con concern for hypotension in these patients. Beta blockers have concern for heart rate response, as these patients rely on heart rate in order to provide cardiac output since they have fixed stroke volume. Non-DHP calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem and verapamil, should not be used in these patients because they have a risk of binding amyloid fibrils. And loop diuretics could be considered for use for decongestion if needed. Again, there is not data to show that the benefits seen in typical heart failure patients would be related to our patients with ATTR cardiomyopathy. In our patients with atrial fibrillation, we already discussed that anticoagulation is important. There's currently not a preference between using a DOAC or using warfarin. This has not been studied and should be made on an individual patient level. Amiodarone is the agent of choice for rhythm and rate control since patients are poorly tolerant of beta blockers and digoxin has a risk of binding amyloid fibrils as well. This brings us to our next knowledge check question. Which medication is currently approved to reduce cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular-related hospitalization for ATTR cardiomyopathy. Okay, with results coming in, it looks like the majority of people did say to Famidus, answer choice C, that is correct. Answers A and B, butrocerin and nitrocin, are currently approved only for polyneuropathy for hereditary ATTR, but there are studies underway. Answer D, pervitalol, the benefits of this have not been proven in this population, and they may be poorly tolerant of beta blockers. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.